0: we dive into the word this morning. Father God, we come to you, Father, with brokenness. Father, we come to you with needs, wants, desires. Father, we come with eyes that apart from you cannot see. Lord, we come to you with ears that apart from you cannot hear. And so, Father, we ask that you would do a work this morning, that you would open Blinded eyes, that you would give us eyes to see the truth this morning, that you would give us ears to hear the truth this morning, that we would be able to understand what it is that you're calling us up and into, Father, in our lives and the, the life of the church gathered community, Father, Lord, in the lives that we lead in our families, Father. The reality to which you've called us in as Christians, as believers in Christ is much harder than what we thought it was. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would give us understanding, give us uh, focus and attention, that you would make the words of scriptures come alive for us this morning. Lord, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce you to somebody imagine we had a new church member join the church he will attend every service including all special events he'll go on missions trips with a passion to convert Those who don't know Christ to Christ. He will give of his money 10%. He will sing on stage. He will read his Bible daily and he will even memorize Scripture. He will be excited and happy to pray in the corporate gathering. He is thoroughly orthodox in his theology. He believes the Scriptures are without error, he believes in a literal heaven. In a literal hell, he never gets drunk, not addicted to pornography, never uses profanity. He's a family man. He loves his country fervently. He weeps on July the 4th, and he always votes the right way. His reputation in the community is stellar. If any man had earned his right to go to heaven, it's this man. His religion is certainly something... To admire. Now, imagine this man. Sadly, this is a man headed straight for hell. I've just introduced you to a 21st century Pharisee. A Pharisee in the first century was not scorned as a legalist. You understand that. The scriptures we're going to dive into this morning. He was looked up as a model citizen, a person of piety and religion. Unfortunately, the Pharisees had, as Paul says, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see, amazing, we can have a passion for God. We can have a passion for the Bible and a passion for Jesus Christ and still not know Him. We can be deceived, captured, enslaved by the modern-day Pharisee. Tragically, those who have been raised in the church are often the most acceptable to this kind of deception. Our pride in our religious rituals, church practices, cultural traditions blind us both to the great sinfulness and the great Savior, who alone can save us from our sins. You see, the Lord, uh, in His Word, gives us harsh language for those who are prideful. I'm just going to read a couple of them here for you. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The horror you inspire has deceived you in the pride of your heart, you who live in the cleft of the rocks, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be humbled. Exalted. And finally, James 4 6 says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The question for us this morning is why is God so opposed to the proudful? Why is God so opposed to pride? Here's the answer. It's because human pride is in opposition to God and His Word. It thinks more of itself than it should. It thinks more of itself than than God thinks of it. And amazingly, this pride can hide in all of our hearts. This pride can mask itself in a church community... And so the question for us this morning is, what does this look like? Mark chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, verse 1 says this. Now when the Pharisees had gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Let's stop right there. You remember, we just got out of Mark chapter 6 last week, and here we are, chapter 7. Right at the end of chapter 6, Jesus is doing what? He's he's healing people, right? He's, He's bringing life to broken people. The Pharisees hear this. Up in Jerusalem, they've they've heard who Jesus is, and so they've come to see. They've come to corner. They've come to give them a test. You see, because Pharisees honor God with their lips, this results in false worship. You see, the Pharisees and scribes, these, these teachers of the law, have come again from Jerusalem amid the growing popularity of Jesus. By now they know that Jesus is up to no good. And they've come to shut it down. They are certain that they know who this Jesus is. And they are determined to take Him down. You see, too often we ourselves fall into this trap, right? We, we, we think we know people. We think that we understand. We, we've made up in our minds the character of a person before we ever get to really know them. With our opinions firmly formed, we look only for the evidence which confirms our previous opinion of them. Facts will not get in the way of our opinions. And if we cannot find a fault that will stick to him, then we will go after their friends, associates, and followers. This guilt by association is the strategies the Pharisees are going to tackle here. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So here they are. They've come down from Jerusalem. They've heard of this Christ, this this Jesus who is healed, who has said that he is the one alone who has life, and they've come to shut him down. But as they're examining him, they said, we can't find fault with him. So what do they do? They look to his disciples, those closest to him, and they say, hey, Jesus, why, why are your guys not washing their hands? Ceremonially unclean, they have unwashed hands. No, this has nothing to do, like if you're a mom and you're like, yeah, that's right, Pharisees, get them. Wash your hands before you eat. No, that's not what they're talking about here, right? Like if you look at the laws that these, uh, that these Pharisees were referring to, these laws, the tradition of elders, like it wasn't even enough water to even actually do any hygiene cleaning for your hands. Right, so it probably looked like your toddlers washing their hands, like, psh, 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 psh. good. Right, this was a ceremonious thing; it was religious, it was ritual purity. And note that this went beyond what Scripture called his, his disciples to. These traditions, right, they were used to establish the spiritual superiority of the Pharisees and scribes over the common people. You see, Mark, he's writing this letter, right? This, this gospel to a Roman audience, a Gentile Roman audience, so you'll notice that he actually begins to explain what's going on here, which is helpful for us, because we ourselves are not Jewish. Look what he says again in verse 3 and 4, he says, for the Pharisees, right, this is in parentheses in the ESV, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace. Now, no, stop right there. Where did Jesus just come from? At the end of chapter 6. Where was he? He was in the marketplace. Because they were bringing the sick and the, the broken people to Jesus in the marketplace, there to touch them, there to get a healing. So notice that we've transitioned. But Mark is still tying this story back to the previous story. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. So you might have touched something unclean, right? From the Jewish perspective, like you may have bumped into a Gentile. Now you're unclean. And now before you go to eat supper, you must wash. If you disregard the traditions of the elders, they thought that was sinful. Religious, ritual, and legalistic traditions had taken over their lives, enslaving them rather than freeing them. However, they are blind to their own self-imposed bondage, so they challenge Jesus with an air of pride, spiritual superiority, and self-righteousness, asking Him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Right? Now notice, they, they, they don't say, why are your disciples breaking, thus saith the Lord? Right? Because they're like, no, no, no. like This was all just added on context. Added on stipulation and rules. And so they just said, the tradition of the elders. They perceived themselves to be firmly established in the religious right. Jesus and his disciples were not. All this religious washing right, had a good point. right? Like if you think back to the book of Leviticus, right, right, the reason God instituted clean and unclean and washing ceremonies was to remind the Jewish people that they come unclean before a holy God. To remind themselves that they are not God and that God is holy, separate from them. But they were completely off base on the source of truth Of their own impurities. You see they thought the problem was outside of them and not inside. It wasn't their hands that was the problem, it was their hearts. But as you know it's much harder to judge the content of someone's heart than it is to judge the content of their hands. So instead they decided to draw up a list of external religious activities and see who came out on top. That Now that's much easier. We can rank and play that game. But notice Jesus' response. Look at verse eight or 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of God. Men. You see, that they didn't understand what it meant to be clean and unclean, and so they came up with their own rules and regulations and used that as the scorecard. But in so doing, they became hypocrites. Worshiping God with a distant heart. One thing Jesus consistently does, and this is the Jesus that we all know and love, isn't it? What's He doing? He calls them out. He calls them hypocrites. Exposes them for who they truly are. Where you see, Jesus makes no reference to the conduct. He doesn't answer the question. Instead, He expresses the, ma- the heart of the matter. Which is, how do you know what's true? Notice He answered them with scriptures. He was trying to get them to understand what is the source of spiritual authority? Traditions of men or the Word of God? What will determine how you think and live your life? You see, for the Pharisees, it was this extra tradition of the elders. It was this extra law, this right and wrong keeping list of to-dos. And so Jesus begins with this scathing indictment, calling the Pharisees and scribes hypocrites. They were nothing more than religious actors and pretenders. And so the prophet Isaiah condemned their hypocr- hypocritical religion they say the right things about God, but their hearts are still ungodly. The religion is all words and show the result was vain, purposeless worship. Worship that God neither welcomes nor receives. And so Jesus says that they teach the doctrines as the commandments of men and that they abandon the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. They held that ultimate authority for spiritual life was both scripture and tradition. But if there was a conflict between the two, which do you think won out? Traditions. Sometimes the Bible wasn't even considered. They said, we have our traditions, this is all we need. I wonder, are there, is this like any churches you know? Or is this just a first century problem? You see, some potential examples of this kind of legalism in the contemporary church can be found in our own church business meetings, in deacons' meetings, church discipline, religious practices. Think about it like this. We're Baptists, okay? Which means, how do you run a church business meeting? Anybody know Robert's Rule of Order? Anybody ever heard of that? So, like, you have to have a motion, a second... And vote. Here's a problem. I'm Baptist, okay? Do you hold that up or do you hold the Bible up? Which becomes more important in a church business meeting? For example, what happens if someone passes or motions and then passes something that goes contrary to Scripture? Do you still go with it? Just be, well, you know, Robert's Rules of Orders says uh, that's how it works. No. No. All things in life should reflect the Scriptures. Because we think that if we have all the right boxes checked, we think we're good. You see, lists are easy to check off. Some of you type A's have already wrote your list for tomorrow and have already started checking things off. It's not me. But you see, our hearts are much harder to actually examine, isn't it? You see, can you provide a spiritual basis for what you believe and do? Are you a text-driven or a tradition-driven Christian? The difference is crucial. One of the first sermons I ever preached at the last church I was a part of was something like this. like If you were on an island, no idea, never been part of a church, and all of a sudden you felt like, I'm supposed to start a church, what would it look like? What would you base it off of? What would would make it up? How would it be designed? Who would be in charge? How would you run it? Listen, if the answer is not, what do the scriptures say? Then the answer is wrong. It doesn't matter what kind of fruit the church produces. It doesn't matter what kind of good things it may say. It doesn't matter what kind of self-help it may stand up. Like, it's wrong. If it's not based upon what the scriptures actually say. Like, how do you know what's true, church fam? How do you know what's true in life? Because here's the thing. Everyone out there is trying to get say this is true or that's true. Listen, how do you base what's actually true? Or do you end up like the agnostic who says, well, who can know? You know, we can't figure it out. Who can know? Listen, you base all truth on the fidelity to the scriptures. If what they say matches what the Scripture says, then you can take it to the bank. You see, the Pharisees were taking the traditions of the elders and elevating it above the Scriptures. And they said, this is true. This is how you live life. And as modern-day Pharisees, we do the same thing. And it results in vain worship. Look at what happens next. Because listen, not all traditions are bad, right? Like every week, like we did a whole series uh, at the end of you know in the fall of last year, right, based around like what church is and why we do it, right, and looking at the scriptures and what does the scriptures say. And some of that is traditions, but listen, it's traditions handed down by the scriptures. Not all traditions are bad. You see, the traditions become bad when we put them on the same level as scripture or in the place. Of scriptural, right? It becomes this Bible plus kind of religion. In adding to the Bible, you, for all practical purposes, make void the Bible and nullify its truth and power in your life. Jesus makes this crystal clear as he moves into round two with the Pharisees here, right? So, no contest. This this beat down gets pretty ugly, and the exposure of sinful hearts is painful. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way. Of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You see, what the modern-day Pharisees do is they reject the commandments of God and establish their own. A.T. Robertson's noted that the strong contrast here between the command of God and the traditions of men. You see, they think that they are establishing the command of God, protecting it, right? That that's what they believed. But in reality, they are rejecting God's commandments, and in the process, they establish their traditions as if it were God's commandments. They set aside what is the revealed word of God and replace it with this made up traditions of men. Like, this isn't ludicrous. This is insanity. Like, why would we do this? And yet, we do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing. It's what it means to be human. Man-made rules and regulations become the object of obedience while God's commands get set aside. Have you ever heard a line like this? Well, you know, our Constitution says, our bylaws have the final word in this place. It doesn't. Church family, look right at me. Calvary Baptist Constitution, as good as it is, Calvary Baptist Church bylaws, as good as they are, do not have the final word in this church. The Scriptures do. Scriptures. Now listen, I, I think that our Constitution and bylaws are good and, and they're grounded in the Scriptures. Don't hear me say that I think they're not. But if it ever comes to a point where like, ah, maybe, the Scriptures win every time. You see, we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine, write our church traditions in light of God's Word regularly and be courageous enough to make the changes so here's one area, and I've mentioned this before. Here's one area where I think our church polity and structure actually come off the Scriptures a bit, right? So we're Baptists. said it already today. In case you didn't know, here's the first time here. We, we are Baptists. We're Baptistic in our beliefs and faiths. But here's one thing where I think the Baptist Church primarily gets off the Scriptures and kind of makes up their own thing, right? Like We have a church polity system which has one elder, one pastor, that's me, she didn't know it. I know Philip is dressed more like the traditional pastor. It's me, though. But everywhere that I read in the Scriptures of churches, Paul's writing to the churches, he's writing to the elders of the churches, it's always in plurality. It's always multiple men. It's never this one-guy-kind-of-in-charge idea. It's a plurality of elders. Read Timothy. Read Titus. It's always to the elders... At the churches, and the elders together in plurality serve and structure the church and lead the church community. And then next to that is this idea, this role of the church deacon. The church deacons serve the church and all the ministerial—not the ministerial, but the the actual like functioning day-to-day grind. Right? If you read in the Book of Acts how deacons got their start, right? They were waiting tables, serving food to widows and orphans. That's the role of the deacon. That's the role of church structure, right? No other church structure is named. And yet, and I say this in in hopes that eventually we kind of move into this plurality of elders, what the Baptist church has primarily done is said, okay, we have one elder, one pastor, and then we have elders, or then we have deacons. And the guy kind of at the pastorate, he kind of drives the ship, carries the load. And the deacons serve... You see what I'm saying? You see where tradition gets elevated above? I was like, I've never heard of a church with two pastors, two elders. Elders. This is, this is Baptist pastor. We, we, we use the term pastor. Okay, pastor, elder, bishop, all the same. Shepherd, all the same in the Bible's language. Anyways, back on task. You see, we foolishly push away the only trustworthy and infallible source of authority when we replace the scriptures with Tradition. And this is an act of spiritual suicide. Did you notice this progression, this sad progression of the Pharisees and scribes here? Look at verse 7. They teach the commandments of men, number one. Number two, verse 8, they leave the commandments of God. Number three, verse 9, they reject the commandments of God. And verse 13, they finally make void the word of God. Look at that progression. It kind of happens without knowing We'll just teach. Okay, here's what the Bible says, but we'll go ahead and teach this over here, this tradition of men. It sounds good. It's easier to do, easier to implement. But they don't even realize they've left the commandments of God when they start to do that. And then, without realizing it, they actually reject the commandments of God in verse 9. And finally, they make void the word of God in verse 13. Look, Let me pull these scriptures up. Look what, they said. Look what he says there in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Right? Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then he gives them an example here in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Now, where is he getting that from? Deuteronomy and Exodus, right? The Ten Commandments listed in both of those uh, books. And, and they have replaced it. Look what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban. Right? And then Mark kind of explains what that means here for us. He says, that it's given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So G- Jesus is round two years. He he's switching the game. It's no longer about clean hands or unclean hands. He's talking about, like, that's one example. Here's another example. He says, Moses said, right, honor your father and mother. But what have the Pharisees done? They've switched it up. They said, well, you know, if a man wants to give his stuff to God, then he no longer has to honor his father and his mother. Right? So it's this weird thing that, that they've done here. You see, they've switched, and in in, in, in in a... A way to serve God, they actually ignore God's word. Because God said, Honor your father and mother. And they said, Well, like, if, you, if you're going to give your money to the church, right, then don't worry about that. You just say, It's Corbin. It belongs to God, mom, dad. I don't have to take care of you. He so said, They've rejected God's word, they've left it, made it null and void. Listen, it's an easy progression easy to start teaching something outside the Bible, and before you know it, you actually end up rejecting the Scriptures. And if we're not careful, we fall, we fail to see our own hypocrisy in this kind of progression. Jesus now turns and gives this example that settles the issue. This idea of Corbin, right, he says that this is, this is not right, this is wrong. They position their traditions in the place of Scripture and themselves in the place of God. The heart truly is an idol factory, isn't it? Religious traditions are some of its best tools to produce idols. How I many of you have ever been talking with someone about God and say, here's what the Scriptures say, and they said, well, I would never love a God like that. You know why? The God they have in their mind isn't the God of the universe. It's a God of their own hands, a God of their own making. Well, I can never love a God who makes an exclusive truth claim that some—that a God would send people to hell. Listen, they don't love the God of the Bible. They've made up their own God. Notice next that these modern-day Pharisees are confused concerning the source of sinfulness. You see, every one of us, every human heart, has in it the root of every human sin. It is entirely possible to look nice on the outside while being dead on the inside. The most deadly contamination is not in what you touch, the most deadly contamination is what is in your heart. Look at verse 14. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you also without understanding? Right? You've got to love this about the disciples in Mark's gospel. He's just like constantly, Jesus like, Do you guys not understand what I just said? Thick. Much like us. Do you not understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? He just like repeats himself. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. You see, Jesus charges all who are listening in on this debate, right? This debate with the Pharisees and the scribes. He's charging them to pay attention, to understand, to see, to hear. He delivers this parable. And when his disciples ask the meaning of this parable, Jesus once again chides them for their lack of understanding. And this is one of the most critically important spiritual lessons in the whole word of God, right here in Mark chapter 7. You see, Jesus explains that corruption is not external, but internal. Impurity is not a matter of the stomach, but of the heart. Defilement, sinfulness is not what goes in, but what comes out. Jesus' words are spiritually revolutionary. He is saying that the real issues of religious and spiritual faith are not, internal, are not external, but internal. You see, all, sin always proceeds from within. Food ends up in the stomach, he says, and then is digested and then sent out. But sin begins in the heart of every man. Sin remains in the heart and then produces all manner of sinfulness and death. The basic problem of fallen humanity is not what we do, but who we are. Listen to me. Understand. Why do you sin? Have you ever asked yourself, like, like why do I do that? Maybe it's because my mom didn't love me enough as a child. No, no. It's not it. Although, maybe she didn't. Listen. The reason you sin the reason you disobey God's Word, the reason you break His commandments every day of your life is not because of anyone else besides you. The sinfulness in your own heart produces sinful actions. You see, our hearts are not morally neutral or even morally good. The world would have you believe, right? In the contrary to the Word of God, they would say, well, you know, there's good in everybody. No. No. We are born depraved. God-haters. Wanting nothing to do with God. Like, that's the state of the heart of man ever since Adam and Eve fell. And that sin nature was passed down to every human being except Christ. You see, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Same words, rearrange. Huge difference. We do not sin or we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's our, our natural state. Apart from Christ, all we do is sin. Even the sinner who wants nothing to do with God is separated from God. Even if he loves his wife well, puts his kids in bed and tries and doesn't tell a lie, he doesn't murder, right? He he puts his kids in bed and he, he lays down on the pillow and said, man, I didn't break any laws today. Even then, his whole day, sinful. Because he's done it out of his own strength and not out of Christ. The basic problem of fallen humanity is not what we do, but who we are. And notice, like, this, out of this flows, right? Out of this, like, like, Christ is saying it's not what goes into you, it's what comes out of you. It's the state of your heart. And that the sinfulness always reveals its fruits on the outside. Look at verse 21. For from within, like, not from without, Right? The, the Pharisees thinking that it's because they haven't washed their hands, they've touched some unclean stuff, that's why they're sinful, that's why they're defiled. But Jesus says, no, 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 from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within. and They are what defile a person. Mark Dever calls these verses the fingers of sin. They are evidence of our corruption and our corrupt heart. Inevitably, sin's root will produce sin's fruit. And it is an ugly, destructive crop to behold. Jesus provides this selective list of sin's outbearings, its fruit. He highlights no less than 13 characteristics of the evil actions that flow naturally from a sinful heart. Actions that always result in sorrow, harmful behavior, and death. The list has a strong Old Testament grounding here. Look, it says evil thoughts. These are evil devising schemes. They set the stage for what Jesus lists next. Sexual immorality, right? The general word identifying any and all sexual sins contrary to God's will. It includes premarital, extramarital, and unnatural sexual behavior. Theft, this is stealing. Taking from another what is not yours, the eighth commandment. Murder, taking an innocent life, the sixth commandment. Adultery, violating the marriage covenant by engaging in sexual behavior mentally or physically with someone you are not married to, the seventh commandment. Coveting, coveting a desire or greed, a desire for more at the expense or exploitation of another. This is the tenth commandment. Wickedness or evil thoughts, behavior that is bad, wicked, deliberate, malice. Deceit, this is deception, dishonesty, cunning, treachery, sensuality or promiscuity, unbridled, shameless living that is lacking in moral discernment or restraint. Envy or stinginess, literally an evil eye. It's a figure of speech for jealousy rooted in unbelief. Believes God is withholding his best from you, a heart ailment that has the seeds of its own destruction sown within, never satisfied. Always wanting more. Slander or blasphemy. This is defaming, speaking evil of man or God. Pride. This is arrogance or haughtiness. Foolishness. This is senselessness. Spiritual insensitivity. You see, these evil actions are the natural state of everyone you know. Everyone you know. Every old man, every young woman. This is their natural state outside of Christ. Christ. And it's not because of how they were brought up in the world. You see, these evil actions are even what describe what would look like a good person on the outside. Because these evil actions arise from one's hearts, which is the source of sin that condemns. You see, there's basically two approaches to religion. Each of one can be summed up into one single word. Do or done? The world says the problem is out there. And the solution is to answer the question, what can I do? How can I fix this? How can I make this right? How can we make injustice go away? And the Bible says the problem is not out there, but it's in here, inside of each of us. And the answer is, is what has Christ done? You see, in modern-day Pharicism and legalism, we think better of ourselves than Jesus does. But in salvation, we think the same about ourselves as Jesus does. We are hopeless, helpless sinners in desperate need of a Savior. See, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says... Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. When the Lord examines your heart, what does He see? Does He see a self-righteous, modern-day Pharisee trusting in what I do? Or does He see a humble sinner trusting only what Christ has done? The difference is of eternal significance. It's not an easy question. It's not a light question. So take it home. Think about it. Mull over it over the weekend. As you're watching the Super Bowl tonight, think to yourself, am, am I trusting in my own doing? Or am I trusting what Christ has done? Let's pray. Father God, we have no hope outside of you. Apart from you, Father, we are desperately wicked. Deceiving our own selves, Father, we push you away. And this is why it's so important that you give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, Father. That we would see our own brokenness, our own great need of a Savior, and that we would see the great Savior who has already done the work for us and that we would rest in that work, Father. Lord, that we would notice in our own lives where we've built up traditions of men, Father, and replaced the Scriptures with those traditions. Lord, that we would understand uh, what is fidelity to the Scriptures and what is not, Father, And that all of life, in our marriages, in our families, Father, in our workplaces, in our uh, education getting, Father, that we would work out our theology and our understanding of who you are in all facets of lives, who our friends are, should be dictated by the Scriptures, Father. What we eat and what we drink should be dictated by the Scriptures. We pray that you would uh, open our eyes to this kind of understanding, Father. Because if not, then what we will do, we will build up our own idols and our own gods. And we just ask that you would smash those idols today. And we would not be modern day Pharisees, but we would be lovers of you and your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, Philip to lead us in a verse of turn your eyes and then do the benediction.